you're passionate about transforming retail operations and improving performance, plus you're accountable for key change projects and programs in your company, then you're in the right place. Welcome to the Retail Transformation Show with me, Oliver Banks. and welcome to the Retail Transformation Show. My name is Oliver Banks and I am your host and I'm delighted to be your guide to help you successfully transform your retail operations. Thanks for tuning in. This one is episode 137, number 137. Simplification is often a big topic in the world of change and transformation. Simplifying operating models should always be a goal for any organization, but particularly retail operations, where there are some extensive processes and procedures that go on in and around the business. But simplification, whilst essential, sometimes doesn't get the airtime or the focus that perhaps a sexy technology project would do, but it still provides a ton of value. So what I wanted to do for you is hook up with someone that is equally passionate about simplification. So I am delighted to be partnering with Simon Hedo of Rethink Productivity. Simon is a, a productivity specialist focused on transformation, on financial growth, on process improvement and strategy implementation as well. He and the team at Rethink Productivity work on work studies, on workforce management solution and implementations, as well as many different simplification projects. Simon has a background where he's been productivity manager at Boots and he's been a store manager and project manager at Focus DIY. Plus, Simon is also the podcast host of the Rethink Productivity podcast. But this isn't just a one-off episode. I'm really pleased because we're doing five episodes together. So the next five episodes, we are going to be diving into what we are calling simplification stories, where together and with guests, we're going to be jumping into lots of different topics, as I say, all focused around simplification. So do make sure you hit subscribe on your favourite podcast player and also check out the Rethink Productivity podcast too, where Simon dives into some of the hot topics going on around productivity in the retail and hospitality space. Show notes for today are going to be over at obandco.uk slash 137. That's obandco.uk slash 137. So here is the first of our Simplification Stories episode where we are diving into the topic of Lean and Lean Six Sigma and if that is still relevant in our modern day world. Enjoy listening. Hi Ollie, how are you today? I'm doing really well, Simon. How are you? Good. Yeah, really good. As we spoke off air, it's not raining as we record, which is a massive breakthrough in my life at the moment. <laughs> so if the sound goes kind of crazy, it means the heavens have opened for one of us, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Hopefully not me, but I don't wish rain on you. <laughs> Very good. So Simon, I'm, I'm really pleased to be talking to you today. Uh, we're going to dive into the topic of simplification, which is almost forever present, it feels like, in the world of retail. But I think as we're coming out of the pandemic, increasingly companies are looking at all of their processes and looking, actually, how do we how do we simplify this? What are your views on simplification first up? Yeah, 
see lots of simplification teams, transformation teams, people changing in and out of those jobs on LinkedIn and contacts we've both got. So it, it really is a hot topic. Interesting, as you said, that you know people are coming back after the pandemic, the world is opening up and long may that continue, that people are focusing on this again. Now, whether that's because they know things have changed pre and post, or actually it was on their agenda before, who knows? But as you say, certainly a massive, massive hot topic for anybody in retail, hospitality, manufacturing at the moment. Definitely. I think, you know, you, you raised a very good point around people moving around. And increasingly, I've seen more and more people with continuous improvement style job titles over the past couple of years, I'd say, maybe a bit longer. And that, that really suggests, the word continuous improvement really suggests to me, it's a real focus on lean, which, you know, as, as a black belt myself, I'm always uh, a particular fan of. What are your thoughts on lean? Are you, are you a fan of lean? The principles, absolutely. Uh, I think being a more of a retailer than a, a lean Six Sigma expert, sometimes I think the following the process in all its component steps is really tricky in a really fast paced environment, mm. which is clearly why it's been born out of manufacturing, very repetitive, very flow based. Yes. We've both worked in retailers, you, you supermarkets, primarily me, kind of boots and, and DIY. Mm. When you get those things called customers, which have a bit of a random uh, thought process <laughs> at times, bless them, in lots of things they do ask and say, that throws it a little bit. But absolutely stand by the principles, which I think we'll work through today. So, uh, yeah, it'd be a good conversation. Yes, definitely. I, I think that point about manufacturing is so true. So I first learned about Lean Six Sigma back when I was in my engineering world, looking at manufacturing lines, looking at product design and, you know, literal tolerances on size of holes and all that sort of interesting geeky stuff. But you're absolutely right. The noises that you get in the manufacturing line are so small relatively to to the noises, the variables that you get in the world of retail. And that is, as you rightfully say, one of the reasons why I think Lean Six Sigma doesn't need to be followed so rigorously as a step-by-step -step process, which is how I learned it, to be honest. You know, we introduced the DMAIC process, so define, measure, analyze, improve, and control. And the way I learned it was you rigorously go through each step and you have a toll gate and you don't pass through until you have met all of the criteria. But the world of retail, A, is a lot faster, which is one of the reasons why I moved. <laughs> yeah. But um, yeah, there's just so much going on. And I certainly find myself using it more as a, a toolkit now rather than a methodology. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I think the same can be said for things like Prince2. The whole framework of project management within Prince2 is great in a retail world your projects would be two, three times as long because of, like you say, rightly so with uh, Six Sigma Lean, all the stage gates that, that are there to prevent people moving on to the next stage before uh, they've completed the other one. And, you know, we'll talk about that in terms of the Six Sigma piece. But um, yeah, mm. the principles perfect, really, really similar to me to Prince 2. If you can stick to those principles, maybe the rigid flow is, is the bit that retailers are either a bit more relaxed about or impatient about. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. So we have got seven lean principles to guide you through today. Let's just give you a quick heads up as to the, the seven. So they are always focus on the customer, understand how work really happens, make your process flow smoothly, reduce waste and concentrate on value, 
stop defects through removing variation, get buy-in from the team through collaboration, and finally, make your efforts systematic and scientific. Where should we start, Simon? Well, let's start with a customer. That should be the, the start point for most things, in my view, and <laughs> ironically is number one as well. So maybe, maybe there's a, a subtle message. That fits, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and it, it's interesting, isn't it? Because it, it seems obvious and it, it's obvious to us from our kind of retail upbringings, that's, that's where you'd start. Maybe we don't necessarily see that play out. I don't know if, if you see the same that sometimes your customer might be internal. Sometimes it might be the, the customer that walks through the door. So mm. interest. I don't know your thoughts on if you see that being um, adhered to with clients you work with or actually it's one of the, the forgotten seven. I think it's interesting. So you definitely raised a good point about confusion over the customer. And I think we do need to, as we're getting into a lean mindset, we do increasingly need to think about the customer not being the person that walks in through the door with a trolley or a basket or shopping bag or whatever that is, uh, or clicks on the website as well, I suppose. <laughs> yep. But actually could be a whole series of internal customers and could actually even be a supplier, right? So I think that customer mindset is very important. And it's actually, I think, in the world of Lean Six Sigma, it's the thing that gets forgotten about most. So increasingly people think about Lean and think about it as a, a cost-cutting tool, talking about reducing waste, that's the focus, right? Reduce waste, save costs, you know, increase productivity, whatever that is. But actually, there's a huge piece, the central piece, the first piece, right? Which is all about focusing on the customer and focusing on the customer value add, which definitely has to be in there. It's a non-negotiable, but it can get forgotten as different projects and program aims and objectives say, you know, we must make a cost saving, we must do this, we must do that. You still have to consider the customer though. It sounds obvious, but it's always worthwhile just checking in and saying, am I? Am I truly considering the customer? And, and actually continuing to ask yourself, who is the customer as well? Yeah. And for me, there's that piece around, are you really clear on what your customer wants once you've identified who they are? Or are you working off a bunch of assumptions that <laughs> you think this is what they want? Because clearly they can lead you to two very, very different places. That is so true. So very true. How do you best find that sort of voice of the customer, I suppose, if we're using the uh, official terminology, Simon? I think you've you've got to involve them from, from the start. So clearly there, there's been a project created or a series of workshops or work streams or job roles to fix some things or make some things better. So the need has been identified quite early on because that team or project or process wouldn't exist. I think it's it's then and it, it kind of dovetails into point two really understand how work really happens. Those people that are doing those jobs, roles, processes, you've identified who they are. Why wouldn't you then go and speak to them or get them to come in in you know in days when you're allowed to get in offices together for a period of time and, and chat mm. and work you through that process see them do it see a video of them do it and for me it's about finding that balance of what things work really well in the things that you're trying to fix because you don't want to break those mm. you want to keep those at least as good as they are and make them better what things are really really important to fix or do differently or find creative solutions for and then what are the kind of nice to do things? So what are, what are the things on the list that if we've got time, we could get round to that? So then you're really clear on their requirements for, for want of a better technical term, things not to break. 
things to absolutely fix and things if we've got time and we can and we've got the resource the money these are things that make our life a little bit better but aren't that important so you're really clear on what's important to do Mm. but also what's important not to undo i think that gets forgotten quite a lot you can undo some really good stuff by trying to fix the stuff that doesn't work yeah definitely i think that's a very very good point actually to make i'd also add on to that actually it's worthwhile considering depending on who your customer is, can they be part of the project or program team as well if they're not already naturally? Um, because yep. actually if they're involved in that, you know, day in, day out progress, then they're going to be a whole lot more committed. Yeah, and you, you might have some senior people on your steering group, so making some of the strategic decisions, but actually maybe end, end users or receivers of any change, they're on your working group, so they're doing your trials or your proof of concepts your minimum viable product if it, it's software so you're mm. engaging them really really early to i suppose stop issues further downstream when you release something or roll something out that's that doesn't hit the criteria you've set out mm-hmm. yep definitely it is one for you then so do you think that when central project team set up they really understand how things work or they have a view of the world of how things may work on in the hotel or in the store from historically the way they did it if they were you know a unit manager or a store manager or from a process map do you think there's a a disconnect at times between how it really happens and the the theoretical way it happens well this is a great lead into the second principle right understand how work really happens I think there's a there's a mix, right? So there are some people that perhaps have lived and breathed that lifestyle. You know, maybe they used to be a store manager, let's say, or a duty manager, something something like that, that they have lived it, breathed it, and dangerously may think they know it, but perhaps that experience is now a few years out of date, but perhaps not. You know, one of the things I always see is a, a very powerful team model is using secondments and using people to be seconded in from the operation into perhaps a project team or a transformation team. And I think that brings very relevant knowledge, but it still is one person's experience and one person's opinion. So I think there is a danger that even with that, you can put yourself in a bucket and not really truly understand the, the full the full setup. I think the the point you make about assumptions is absolutely true. I have been guilty of that at times, for sure. Uh, And it's always worthwhile having someone on the team that I think has the, uh, almost the authority, almost the permission to say, is that really what customers want? Is that really what happens? And I think that will help keep everyone honest. If you give that one person permission or give the whole team permission to, to challenge back and say, is that, is that what really happens? Yeah, and again, like you, I've been guilty of thinking, well, this is how I used to do it in store. It worked for me. I never got any criticism from customers or my boss about doing it that way. So that must be the way to do it. And it probably naively never considered there was probably another 10 ways to do it or if they were discounted them because my way worked. So again, it, it plays back, doesn't it, to having those eight cross-representative group of end users involved that give you that, oh yeah, I see why you do it that way, but in our store, we do it this way. So there may not even be a defined best practice way when you start because it's so variable. Very true. Very, very true. So if we get to know how it really happens and we can do that through users, we can go and do some work measurement and sampling and come back with the, this is the average time and the variance and 
all those kind of techniques that, that we're familiar with. The next point is make your processes flow smoothly. So how do, once we understand what really happens, how do we make it make the process flow smoothly? What kind of thought processes involved there? So for me, uh, there's a couple of things going on here. First is some process mapping. So mapping out your as-is and your 2B process maps is always a great step. The difference, of course, being your as-is is the way it currently plays out. You know, again, thinking about what really happens as a, a key piece, not what should happen. And that may mean that you have quite a complex process map that has lots of different paths through. And that's that's okay. But it is what really happens, right? <laughs> yep. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then, and then it's by by looking, um, you know, again, if if we're going off sort of the lean methodology, you're looking at, at customer value add and business value add. What in each of those process steps is valuable at the end of the day, and what could be done in other ways? And I think there's there's some interesting challenges coming through in our modern day world because although it may be a customer value add item some things could be automated. So they don't need to actually be done necessarily by a human. They could be done by system or by machine, you know, automatically. And thus that process step, whilst still could be valuable, could just be done a whole lot faster. So there's that customer and business value add perspective. But then that second piece is actually what is what I call the lean way of doing it, right? What is the fastest, most effective, most efficient way of getting that particular job done and it's it's always worthwhile just zooming out from the process and saying what am I trying to do here what is the aim of either this process step or this entire process or maybe even this entire operation or proposition what's it trying to do because actually there may be a completely different way of doing it uh, rather than just optimizing the process we may find actually a it may be easier to completely throw the process in the bin and start again, you know, like I say, using new tools of automation, robotics, et cetera. What are your thoughts? Yeah, absolutely the same. So I've, I've seen some process maps where you, you kind of zoom out and look at it and think, I, you know, I really struggle just to move from left to right in that process because there's so many branches, <laughs> there's so many um, and or or if, you know, in, in terms of the decision trees that could happen and cycling back round <laughs> to the start if this if this piece doesn't slot into play. So it's like one of those choose your own adventure books. Do you remember them? Yeah, I always end up back at the start or falling down some disastrous hole somewhere. Um yeah, never quite completed. But I think that there's a key in, you know, and clearly there's some really complex processes in in my background dispensing in um pharmacy world you you map those processes and they're really complex because there's a whole bunch of decision trees and points of deviation that can happen based on you know what the customer may say to you what paperwork they present what type of things you're dispensing and then the kind of clinical governance around it so i'm not saying all processes can be simple but if you've got processes where there's lots of decision trees, then clearly the the complexity ramps up and theoretically you should be presented with more opportunity to make that flow smoothly or to help the end user get through that process with less decisions or again, back to your point, more automated decisions. So how can you help them on that journey, even through complexity? Interestingly, you know, we've talked about mapping those from a business value point of view. Mm -hmm. Clearly then you working into well whatever's left when i work out it adds value to the customer whoever they may be or it's essential to the business is the rest 
waste. So mm. how do we remove that waste and really concentrate on the value, which is 0.5. So reduce waste and concentrate on value. Mm. That that then almost, I think, gives you that overview of that process. If we stick to the terminology of what's the opportunity in this process to do something different? Is it radical? Is it tweaks around the edges? Is it automation? Is it tech? Is it training, upskilling? Where can I go to start to really drive that value and reduce the waste? Mm, Totally. I'm a big fan of reducing waste. I think the classic uh, Tim Wood framework, I guess, to to help identify, identify waste is always always just a useful tool just to have in the back of your mind as you're thinking about how do you best simplify things if you're not familiar with the tim word framework it's uh it's an acronym right so stands for for transport so that's things like moving stock uh materials which takes obviously time and energy so that's the t the i is inventory so i'm sure everyone can think you know high inventory high stock holding just gets in the way and it slows everything down. It adds lots of complication. The M is for motion. So this is moving moving around, but not actually getting things done. The W is for, for waiting. So obviously delays, uh, stops work getting done, useful work getting done. The two O's are interesting. So there's over-processing and over-production. This is almost like going too far into the detail, getting too much done. And then obviously overproduction, you know, if you think of wasted, right, you know, literal wastage, you know, if you're running a bakery, let's say you produce too many loaves of bread, half of them go in the bin. That's that's a classic waste um, of time and materials, of course. And then D is defects. So that's arguably the worst waste because it means you've done a whole load of waste to get to that point and then you have to actually either rework or completely destroy the good work that you have done. So I think that Tim Wood's methodology or framework is is always really useful to to just consider. And, and do you know the first thing that came to my mind when you described all that? No. Counting stock. <laughs> so so it is a real life story. So in, in and I can talk about them because they're not around anymore, sadly. So in my focus DIY days, we merged with great bills and we had this new brilliant PI, so uh, perpetual inventory stock counting mm-hmm. process that was delivered to us. So we'd have a number of accounts each week, which basically took us around the store. It was all pre-programmed in. So I think it was 600, let's say, basic stock counts a week. So we'd the team would go out with the guns, they count their departments. Then if the discrepancy was over a certain pound value or number of single lines, in effect, you could, as a manager, approve it or reject it. So it may have been stolen, whatever. But what that then did is added it to next week's count. So you had to count it again. <laughs> so you could get in a horrible world. And, and bear in mind, you know, DIY, big sheds, you go from, you know, ride on tractor sheds through to screws and nails. So that the range and variance of product size and depth is huge, 40 or thousands, thousand SKUs. Mm. So all we were doing in hindsight, and it, it didn't dawn on me really till we started rethinking, I was thinking much more along the kind of productivity lines, but all those things you talked about. So we pick up the gun, we'd load the gun, someone would go and walk around, count a load of stuff. I'd sit at the desk and probably reject 50% of it because I thought, you know, really, have we lost, really lost 25 tins of pure brilliant white paint? They've just not counted the promotional end. They then go back out and recount it, and maybe it was right or wrong, but because it was a big discrepancy, they then have to recount it next week. So we were forever chasing our tails through mm. walking 
either poor counting, poor stock accuracy, poor admin procedures, whatever it might be. And they, again, there's a load of variables, isn't there? In retail, someone could someone can steal things, whether that be mm. colleagues or customers. Things get dropped and not written off correctly. Things get misallocated from the distribution center or the supplier. So there's a whole bunch of reasons why it might not be right. Mm. But we invested so much time and energy. And the one thing we never really ever focused on was, well, is there really much effort in looking for one brass hinge that's £1.19? Because it's yeah. probably cost us more in labour. <laughs> 20 quid in labour to yeah. find it. <laughs> and, and it's, yeah, and, and that's the way it was. And the, and that's not a criticism of that organisation. At that time, that's roughly what everybody did with accounting, top 200 lines, top 500 lines. I, I'm, sure, I'm sure everyone listening can truly reflect and think, actually, there have probably been some times where we've, we've spent a lot more zooming into one particular error, right? It might be something lost in account, but yeah, it's a great yeah. example. But you think about it now, and actually, if you turned it on its head and said, well, what's the worst that can happen? If you've not got it, you've not got it. So you just introduce an error by different people counting and time and wastage and walking and all the, the non-value-add things as we described them for something that actually, you one, you were probably never going to sell anyway, but two, if you didn't count it and let it get to a gap or near a gap, you could then rectify it a lot quicker. Because mm. all we were doing was chasing a number to a degree. Yes. Yes, very much so. You giving that story of counting made, makes me reflect on one of the first pieces of work I did at Tesco. So fresh into the world of retail relatively at the time. And um, I was really surprised at count accuracy. No, I, I kind of you count and it's like there are six widgets there how do we get that wrong and and i was really surprised doing a whole sort of piece around stock record accuracy around the inaccuracy of counting even small numbers of items so it's not like i'm counting 56 items and i lose count halfway through or whatever because i'm interrupted by a customer and so on but just the the small inaccuracies and that, that leads to leads to those defects it leads to all sorts of you know ongoing waste, as you've just described. It's a great, great example, Simon. Thank you. Yeah, it gives me a, a cold chill thinking about it. <laughs> were we, were we, yeah, were we actually accurate? We were probably just creating inaccuracy. Is is the real uh, fact of the matter? Because it was there was that many things in multiple locations to count, and then you had the warehouse, and it was doomed from the start. Probably. Mm, yes. Yeah. Very interesting. Very interesting. So, I mean, we've kind of touched now on uh, on some of the defects and removing variation just a little bit. But in the interest of, of time, I'm keen to dive into the, the sixth point, which is now get buy-in from the team through collaboration. And I think this is a really interesting point here. We're always talking about collaboration. And I think actually there, there's collaboration across the organization, but there's also collaboration up and down the organization, you know. We, we touched on the point of, you know, there's this assumption that lean is therefore cost saving earlier on. I think there's a big piece around the differences between a practitioner and a leader of lean or lean thinking. What, what are your experiences, Simon? Yeah, and it comes to me right back to the start of what are you looking to achieve. So if that's clear at the start, and it may be a cost saving exercise. If you badge that up to the population that are going to receive it, that you're going to make their life easier, but you've kind of not told them that that means they get less hours to do it or less people, then you'll start to build up that kind of resentment. So I think leaders have got to be really brave in leading this. I've been really clear of we're going to make your life easier, 
but the consequence of that is you're going to have less people or less hours to do it. I see lots of instances where it's it's put under the customer label, and by that I mean the external customer that's coming in to buy, of we're freeing up time to serve customers or we're going to make the experience for customers better. For me, that's all a bit grey, um, and we see lots and lots of people where they've gone on process, lean journeys, transformation, simplification, and in effect, either people work at a lower pace, so they inadvertently create wider um, non-value add time or waste across mm. other processes by doing it because they've not taken the money out or been really targeted where their external customers would want them to be, whether that be a greeter, whether it be extra checkout assistance on a weekend, whatever it, it might be. So for me, the clearer you are with the end game and the reason for doing this, cost reduction, increasing time with customers on these days at these hours, mm-hmm. or actually we're freeing up this time because we've got 20 new processes we're going to drop in click and collect delivery whatever but you're not going to get any more hours for that because one balances the other off that that for me is the sweet spot you've got to try and hit and as as a senior leader that whole team have got to follow that through and play off the same hymn sheet but it can be very difficult to try and badge it up as something it's not because telling people they're going to lose hours or people is a, is a difficult message and drives the wrong thinking then around the acceptance of the project. Definitely. Particularly if there happens to have been a history of perhaps, you know, some, some reduction in, uh, in, in hours or people that has some questionable uh, reality to it, shall we say? Yeah, it's got to be real, hasn't it? You can't <laughs> tell me, and we've all been there, I'm sure. Another example from my history, we're going to give you a cash office weighing machine to weigh all the change when you do the banking, and it's going to save you five hours a week. No, it's going to save me an hour a week. But if you've built the business case the other way and you need five hours a week to pay for it, then we're just going to have to work harder. So again, your return on investment and all those bits its is the the tail wagging the dog or the dog wagging the tail. Mm. Something like that, it raises a very interesting question, right, around actually... Are you being genuine with the business cases? If it does save an hour a week, but you need the five hours a week to make the business case work, that's a tough investment, isn't it? I mean, what's what's going on here with the the I suppose the business savviness of of the project team that yeah. is looking at this and saying, actually, does it work? I mean, it, I think probably that's that's down to well a number of things, right? It's external pressure that's going on, and we must deliver this. We must deliver this change, as well as I think. Probably some unrealistic expectations that are set fairly early on, or maybe even by the sales team, right? That your automatic uh, <laughs> way scale sales team have said, yeah, yeah, saves five hours, five hours a week, and uh, the numbers work out at that at that stage. But then the reality is somewhat different, um, and it's just then just resetting expectations around the business that actually this is not a million quid project or whatever. It's actually much smaller and questionable business case at the best of times and i think that there's a couple of things there for me so if we if we crack the cash office weighing machine example one giving us a weighing machine was probably the wrong solution it was more about why are we still counting money so there was mm. a bigger question that wasn't answered this was a the obvious place to go but actually wasn't addressing the broader use of people's time counting yeah. cash yeah yeah very um, good so so was it was it the right solution two if you've got to the point where 
you know, you've had to build a business case, you've had to reverse engineer a business case, let's say. You, again, you've got to kind of be quite real with people if we're doing this because of using you know, market trends, forces, and that that's just how it is. It's not ideal, but I think people respect honesty rather than, you know, you will say five hours a week and clearly you can't. I think people respect that honesty. The other thing that we've seen as well is with this whole digital journey that people are going on, people don't quite realize, and we do lots of time and as you know, around pre and post projects and mm. and things, it takes longer to type something in unless you are a fluent typer than it does to write something on a piece of paper. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not saying stick with paper. I'm not at all. I'm a massive advocate of losing paper, streamlining process, moving to digital things. But if you're introducing let's say a new hr system where people are typing in lots of data about people that does take longer to do for people that it's not their day job store managers store admin um hotel managers etc than somebody who's a dedicated typer it's just fact mm. and you can prove it through data but it people forget that just because it's a new system there's some elements that might take longer than the process you do now now that's not a bad thing but you never see a business case that says this might take a bit longer yeah definitely and i think that- it's also worthwhile then thinking, again, bigger picture, where is that data going to? You know, you've now got a piece of paper with some scrawned on uh, writing, if you're looking at some some people's writing, right? Yeah. Who reads it? Who, does someone have to type it in later on? How do you, you know, do you have to walk it to the other end of the shop to show someone or get a signature or whatever? It's then thinking actually that bigger bigger piece in terms of it's not just the writing it down, it's the, the, the how is it fully used? um is is very interesting yeah and that leads to reducing the variation because you may interpret my writing to be one word and it's something else <laughs> if you've seen my writing um but also this whole doctor's thing doctor's handwriting yeah it's not that good um <laughs> but this whole thing about making efforts uh systematic and scientific so you systematize something you reduce the branches in that process chart or flow of the system where it can go wrong because the system drives the the logical steps and you know you may have drop down boxes instead of free text which again reduces the the variation gives people choice Mm. maybe they always use the top one because it's the easiest you know that you see things like that come through Mm. but then you know the scientific bit of knowing well actually it's only saved an hour it's not saved five gives the business choices to say well what can we do to make it be five we just suck up the cost or actually we're still going to take the five hours because that's what we've said we appreciate it's going to be harder to to work yeah, definitely. And it, it, you're, you're absolutely right. It does lead us into our, uh, our seventh and final principle, which is, yeah, make your efforts systematic and scientific. Data absolutely plays a huge part in this, as does an overall operating model, which is uh, obviously something I'm, I'm very passionate about as well, in terms of really understanding all of the different segments that are going on and how they interact and interlink with each other is... It's very important as you start to think about lean and you start to think about actually deploying a particular change, perhaps, or a new proposition or a new new operation across an existing set of stores or an existing set of warehouses or whatever that is for for your given operation. And that scientific word, I really love from these set of principles because it is the mindset that we need to get into a bit more in terms of you know, using data to prove or disprove what is happening rather than just purely going on on gut instinct and experience. I'm not saying there's not a place for that. I think there absolutely is, but it is increasingly focused on data. 
Yeah, and and I think those operating models are really powerful in terms of they can lead you to places you may not have thought of. So we're we're focusing on a really large end-to-end process, but actually it only happens twice a year, where actually there's a much smaller process that happens 30 million times a year. Now, where where are you going to invest your effort? What has the biggest <laughs> impact? So those operating models are great, and they, they always help as well, I think, depending on how they're structured, bring together you know what what's the business benefit back to the the previous part of the conversation which roles may this impact so which parts of the business does it impact which solutions might it impact therefore which partners we work with external to the business mm. but also i think use the other way really powerful of you know we're, we're talking about existing process but for new process so lots of people on these digital journeys lots of people doing different things with click and collect click and reserve fulfill from store yes how do you put that in and what does that look like and have we got it right and what's the the map and how long does it take and how many do you think we're going to do so i think you've you've got to be consistent with things coming out with the things going in definitely i i, I do absolutely encourage that sort of in and out thinking actually again it's an, an exercise i often do with clients in terms of what's going on here if you think of things as a black box what are you feeding the black box and what are you taking out of the black box and that can really help just just clarify what's happening and all of the different bits and there are some quite surprising uh usually the inputs right uh, <laughs> quite surprising elements that you think oh i didn't didn't know this needed to be used for that particular black box process fascinating activity to go on and do actually to be honest yeah yeah it's it's very easy to focus on what's coming out and conveniently forget what's going in <laughs> definitely <laughs> Definitely. So, Simon, I love these seven principles. Um, let's just run through them very quickly once again for everyone, just to note down, and we'll put them on the show notes page as well. So those seven are, number one, always focus on the customer. So true, so true, definitely. Number two, understand how work really happens. Number three, make your processes flow smoothly. Number four, reduce waste and concentrate on value. Number five, stop defects through removing variation. Number six, get buy-in from the team through collaboration. And number seven, make your efforts systematic and scientific. So Simon, when we were mapping out this, this entire conversation, we were kind of thinking around, is lean still feasible? Is it still relevant? To me, looking at those seven, definitely yes. What are your thoughts? <laughs> yeah, yeah, one hundred percent. So it's relevant. I think you've got to be um, careful with the way you follow the structure because it it is a for me it's more of a framework than a rigid structure, as I said right at the start. But yes, yeah, relevancy. If you follow those seven principles, and principles is is a great word. Framework principles. You're probably not going to be be far wrong, are you? No, definitely not. And you know, as as we are increasing in a, a world where retailers are moving into the world of manufacturing as well, then I think arguably lean will have have greater impact in as much as you know there, there are opportunities then to to improve the process in a place where there are no consumers <laughs> yep. and things are a little bit more predictable. But you, there's still total value in being able to optimize and being able to simplify the operation absolutely absolutely and in 
podcast number two of this series we're going to have a, a special guest so let's uh, let's maybe not reveal that now and we can launch that when it comes out but we're going to hear some real life stories aren't we <laughs> definitely well, I, th- I think yeah, the, the the stories help to bring it to life and i'm sure everyone has got simplification stories to reflect on and and to share as well so you know i'd personally love to hear your stories of simplification uh what's worked what you found has worked what has not worked equally as well so if if you'd like to share those stories with me, then my email is oliver.banks at obandco.uk. Simon? Yep. Don't forget to copy me in as well. Love to hear them. Mine is simon at rethinkproductivity.co.uk. Super. Well, I've loved this conversation. I think it's been a, re- a really fascinating one. And we could have gone in many, many different directions, actually, going through the conversation. It's like, you know, we could talk about this. We could talk about that. It's like, wow. So I can't wait to do uh, more of these podcasts with you, Simon. Very much looking forward to it. Me too. The first of many good ones. Definitely. I hope you enjoyed the first of Simon and I's simplification stories. Be sure to check out the show notes at obandco.uk slash 137, where you'll find Simon's contact details. And you may also want to check out a couple of additional episodes of the Retail Transformation Show. Firstly, check out episode 79, where, again, Simon was my guest and we explored retail management structures. That was an interesting conversation that, again, still remains relevant and actually has elements of simplification in there too, for sure. Next, I might suggest you dive all the way back to episode 6. Episode 6, that seems like a long time ago where I dived into the topic of stop time-wasting in your organisation and in your operation. So highly relevant there, particularly thinking about wastes, as we were talking about today. And then finally, why not check out episode 117, where I asked the question, are retail operating models dead? That's an interesting thought as you start to think about simplification more. So do go and check out those episodes. As I say, they'll all be on the show notes for easy reference. So head over to obandco.uk slash 137. Also, did you know Retail Transformation Live is back? This is my virtual event, which goes down a storm. I'm amazed at the feedback that I've received about this event. It's the third time that we're going to be running it. And on the 6th, 7th and 8th July 2021, it's back. So do register for free over at retailtransformation.live and join us for those three days, three half days, I might add, where we'll be exploring the retail trends and what that looks like in a post-pandemic world, diving into the new operating model, and finally laying out the transformation capability that you will need to enable that new retail operating model in the post-pandemic world. I would love to see you there. There are going to be some brilliant speakers, brilliant sessions, lots of engagement, I'm encouraging you to get involved, by the way, not just sitting back and watching. So get involved and do join us, retailtransformation.live. And I look forward to meeting you there. Thanks for tuning in and I'll join you for the next episode of the Retail Transformation Show, where we'll explore more simplification stories. Bye for now. Bye for now.